25. However, they overcame the Britons through treachery, by inducing the king to allow them to send four large bodies of their own countrymen. It was to these adventurers, according to tradition, that the kingdom of count out its origin. The story is in itself by no means improbable, while the dates assigned to the first invasion by various Welsh, Gaulish and English authorities, with one exception all fall within about a quarter of a century. This, between the year 428 and the joint reign of Martian and Valentinian III, 450-455. For the subsequent course of the invasion our information is of the most meager and unsatisfactory character. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle the Kingdom of Sussex was founded by a certain L. or L., who landed in 477, while Wessex out its origin to Certic, who arrived some 18 years later. No value, however, can be attached to these dates, indeed, in the latter case the story itself is open to suspicion on several grounds see Wessex. For the movements which led to the foundation of the more northern kingdoms we had no evidence worth consideration nor do we know even approximately when they took place. But the view that the invasion was effected throughout by small bodies of adventurers acting independently of one another, and that each of the various kingdoms owes its origin to a separate enterprise, has little probability in its favor. Bede states that the invaders belonged to three different nations, Kent and Southern Hampshire being occupied by Jutscuvi while Essex, Sussex and Wessex were founded by the Saxons, and the remaining kingdoms by the Anglicuvi. The peculiarities of social organization in Kent certainly tend to show that this kingdom had a different origin from the rest, but the evidence for the distinction between the Saxons and the Angli is of a much less satisfactory character see Anglo-Saxons. The royal family of Essex may really have been of Saxon origin see Essex, but on the other hand the West Saxon royal family claimed to be of the same stock as that of Bernicia, and their connections in the past seem to have lain with the Angli. We need not doubt that the first invasion was followed by a long period of warfare between the natives and the invaders, in which the latter gradually strengthened their hold on the conquered territories. It is very probable that by the end of the 5th century all the eastern part of Britain, at least as far as the Humber, was in their hands. The first important check was received at the siege of Mons Modonicus in the year 517 and Cambridge, or perhaps rather some 15 or 20 years earlier. According to Gildas this event was followed by a period of peace for at least 44 years, in the latter part of the 6th century. However, the territories occupied by the invaders seem to have been greatly extended. In the south the West Saxons are said to have conquered first Wiltshire and then all the upper part of the Thames Valley, together with the country beyond as far as the Severn. The northern frontier also seems to have been pushed considerably farther forward, perhaps into what is now Scotland and it is very probable that the basin of the Trent, together with the central districts between the Trent and the Thames, was conquered about the same time, though of this we had no record. Again, the destruction of Chester about 615 was soon followed by the overthrow of the British Kingdom of Elmwood in southwest Yorkshire, and the occupation of Shropshire and the Lothians took place perhaps about the same period, that of Herefordshire probably somewhat later, in the south. Somerset is said to have been conquered by the West Saxons shortly after the middle of the 7th century. Dorset had probably been acquired by them before this time, while part of Devon seems to have come into their hands soon afterwards. The area thus conquered was occupied by a number of separate kingdoms, each with a royal family of its own. The districts north of the Humber contained two kingdoms, Pernicia Cuvi and Dira Cuvi which were eventually united in Northumbria, south of the Humber. 
Lindsay seems to have had a dynasty of its own, though in historical times it was apparently always subject to the kings of Northumbria or Mercia. The upper basin of the Trent formed the nucleus of the Kingdom of Mercia QV while farther down the east coast was the Kingdom of East Anglia QV between these two lay a territory called Midlanglia, which is sometimes described as a kingdom, though we do not know whether it ever had a separate dynasty. Essex, Cub and Sussex see articles on these kingdoms preserve the names of ancient kingdoms, while the old diocese of Worcester grew out of the Kingdom of the Hooks QV with which it probably coincided in area, the south of England between Sussex and West Wales, eventually reduced to Cornwall, was occupied by Wessex, which originally also possessed some territory to the north of the Thames. Lastly, even the Isle of Wight appears to have had a dynasty of its own, but it must not be supposed that all these kingdoms were always, or even normally, independent. When history begins, Bethelbert, King of Count, was supreme over all the kings south of the Humber. He was followed by the East Anglian King Riedwald and the latter again by a series of Northumbrian kings with an even wider supremacy. Before Edelbert a similar position had been held by the West Saxon king Selin, and at a much earlier period, according to tradition, by L. or L., the first king of Sussex. The nature of this supremacy has been much discussed, but the true explanation seems to be furnished by that principle of personal allegiance which formed such an important element in Anglo-Saxon society. 2. Government Internally the various states seem to have been organized on very similar lines. In every case we find kingly government from the time of our earliest records, and there is no doubt that the institution goes back to a date anterior to the invasion of Britain see Offa, W.E.R.M.U.N.D. The royal title, however, was frequently borne by more than one person. Sometimes we find one supreme king together with a number of underkings subregularly, sometimes again, especially in the smaller kingdoms, Essex. Sussex and Wicks. We meet with 2v.04p.0590 or more kings, generally brothers, reigning together apparently on equal terms. During the greater part of the 8th century Kent seems to have been divided into two kingdoms, but as a rule such divisions did not last beyond the lifetime of the kings between whom the arrangement had been made. The kings were, with very rare exceptions, chosen from one particular family in each state the ancestry of which was traced back not only to the founder of the kingdom but also, in a remoter degree, to a god. The members of such families were entitled to special war guilds, apparently six times as great as those of the higher class of nobles see below. The only other central authority in the state was the king's council or courtyard, with on, plebs, concilium. This body consisted partly of young warriors in constant attendance on the king and partly of senior officials whom he called together from time to time. The terms used for the two classes by beat Armillites Ministry and Comites, for which the Anglo-Saxon version has Agnes and Gazifas respectively. Both classes alike consisted in part of members of the royal family, but they were by no means confined to such persons or even to born subjects of the king. Indeed, we are told that popular kings like Oswine attracted young nobles to their service from all quarters. The functions of the council have been much discussed, and it has been claimed that they had the right of electing and deposing kings. This view, however, seems to involve the existence of a greater feeling for constitutionalism than is warranted by the information at our disposal. The incidents which have been brought forward as evidence to this effect may with at least equal probability be interpreted as cases of profession or transference of personal allegiance. In other respects the functions of the council seem to have been of a deliberative character. 
it was certainly customary for the king to seek their advice and moral support on important questions, but there is nothing to show that he had to abide by the opinion of the majority. For administrative purposes each of the various kingdoms was divided into a number of districts under the charge of royal reeves Sininges Jirfa, prefectures, prepositors. These officials seem to have been located in royal villages Sininges Tan, Villa Regales or fortresses Sininges Berg, Herbs Regis, which served as centers and meeting places markets, and see, for the inhabitants of the district, and to which their dues, both in payments and services had to be rendered. The usual size of such districts in early times seems to have been 300, 600 or 1200 hides. In addition to these districts we find mention also of much larger divisions containing 2000, 3000, 5000 or 7000 hides. To this category belong the shires of Wessex Hampshire, Wiltshire, Berkshire, and C, each of which had in Earl Eldormon, Princeps, ducks of its own, at all events from the 8th century onwards, many if not all, of these persons were members of the royal family, and it is not unlikely that they originally bore the kinly title, at all events they are sometimes described as subregually. 3. Social organization. The officials mentioned above, whether of royal birth or not, were probably drawn from the king's personal retinue, in Anglo-Saxon society, as in that of all Teutonic nations in early times. The two most important principles were those of kinship and personal allegiance. If a man suffered injury it was to his relatives and his lord, rather than to any public official, that he applied first for protection and redress. If he was slain, a fixed sum were guilt, varying according to his station, had to be paid to his relatives, while a further but smaller sum money bought was due to his lord. These principles applied to all classes of society alike, and though strife within the family was by no means unknown, at all events in royal families. The actual slaying of a kinsman was regarded as the most heinous of all offenses. Much the same feeling applied to the slaying of a lord in offense for which no compensation could be rendered. How far the armed followers of a lord were entitled to compensation when the latter was slain is uncertain. But in the case of a kin they received an amount equal to the word guilt. Another important development of the principle of allegiance is to be found in the custom of heroes. In later times this custom amounted practically to a system of death duties payable in horses and arms or in money to the lord of the deceased. There can be little doubt, however, that originally it was a restoration to the lord of the military outfit with which he had presented his man when he entered his service. The institution of fegnhood, i.e. membership of the comitatus or retinue of a prince, offered the only opening by which public life could be entered. Hence it was probably adopted almost universally by young men of the highest classes. The fegn was expected to fight for his lord and generally to place his services at his disposal in both war and peace. The Lord, on the other hand, had to keep his vegans and reward them from time to time with arms and treasure. When they were of an age to marry he was expected to provide them with the means of doing so. If the Lord was a king this provision took the form of a grant, perhaps normally ten hides, from the royal lands. Such estates were not strictly hereditary though as a mark of favor they were not infrequently re-granted to the sons of deceased holders. The structure of society in England was of a somewhat peculiar type. In addition to slaves, who in early times seem to have been numerous, we find in Wessex and apparently also in Mercia three classes, described as twelfth hind, six hind and twelfth hind from the amount of their wordgilds, viz. twelve hundred, six hundred and two hundred shillings respectively. It is probable that similar classes existed also in Northumbria, 
though not under the same names. Besides these terms there were others which were probably in use everywhere, viz. Gazithkan for the two higher classes and Chaorlisk for the lowest. Indeed, we find these terms even in Kant, though the social system of that kingdom seems to have been of an essentially different character. Here the wordgild of the Chaorlisk class amounted to 100 shillings, each containing 20 silver coins seeds, as against 200 shillings of four in Wessex five silver coins, and was thus very much greater than the latter. Again, there was apparently but one Jastyathkan class in count, with a wordgild of 300 shillings, while, on the other hand, below the Chaorlisk class we find three classes of persons described as layas who corresponded in all probability to the Lydia or freedmen of the continental laws, and who possessed wordgilds of 80, 60 and 40 shillings respectively. To these we find nothing analogous in the other kingdoms, though the poorer classes of Welsh freemen had wordgilds varying from 120 to 60 shillings. It should be added that the differential treatment of the various classes was by no means confined to the case of wordgilds. We find it also in the compensations to which they were entitled for various injuries in the fines to which they were liable, and in the value attached to their oaths. Generally, though not always, the proportions observed were the same as in the wordgilds. The nature of the distinction between the Gazithkund and Chaorlis classes is nowhere clearly explained, but it was certainly hereditary and probably of considerable antiquity. In general we may perhaps define them as nobles and commons, though in view of the numbers of the higher classes it would probably be more correct to speak of gentry and peasants. The distinction between the 12th and 16th classes was also in part at least hereditary, but there is good reason for believing that it arose out of the possession of land. The former consisted of persons who possessed, whether as individuals or families, at least five hides of land which practically means a village while the latter were landless, i.e. probably without this amount of land. Within the Chaorlis class we find similar subdivisions, though they were not marked by a difference in wordgild. The Gefaldelda or Tributaries tribute payer seems to have been a Chaoral who possessed at least a hide, while the Jeber was without land of his own, and received his outfit as a loan from his lord. For payments and services, we have already had occasion to refer to the dues which were rendered by different classes of the population, and which the Reeves in royal villages had to collect and superintend. The payments seem to have varied greatly according to the class from which they were due. Those B.04P.0591 rendered by landowners seem to have been known as form or foster, and consisted of a fixed quantity of articles paid in kind, in an's laws cap. 70 We find a list of payments specified for a unit of 10 hides, perhaps the normal holding of a 12th in man though on the other hand it may be nothing more than a mere fiscal unit in an aggregate of estates. The list consists of oxen, sheep, geese, hens, honey, ale, loaves, cheese, butter, fodder, salmon and eels. Very similar specifications are found elsewhere. The payments rendered by the Gefalgelda tributaries were known as Gefal tributani, as his name implies. In Inns Laws we hear only of the hotel or white cloak, which was to be of the value of sixpence per household hide, and of barley, which was to be six pounds in weight for each worker. In later times we meet with many other payments both in money and in kind, some of which were doubtless in accordance with ancient custom. On the other hand the Jeber seems not to have been liable to payments of this kind, presumably because the land which he cultivated formed part of the domain inland of his lord. The term withal, however, may have been applied to the payments which he rendered to the latter. The services required of landowners were very manifold in character, 
probably the most important were military service feared, expeditio and the repairing of fortifications and bridges that the necessities of later times. Besides these we find reference in charters of the 9th century to the keeping of the king's hunters, horses, dogs and hawks, and the entertaining of messengers and other persons in the king's service, the duties of men of the 6th class, if they are to be identified with the red as raid mani of later times, probably consisted chiefly in riding on the king's or their lord's business. The services of the peasantry can only be conjectured from what we find in later times. Presumably their chief duty was to undertake a share in the cultivation of the domain land. We need scarcely doubt also that the labor of repairing fortifications and bridges, though it is charged against the landowners, was in reality delegated by them to their dependents. 5. Warfare. All classes are said to have been liable to the duty of military service. Hence, since the Chaorals doubtless formed the bulk of the population, it has been thought that the Anglo-Saxon armies of early times were essentially peasant forces. The evidence at our disposal, however, gives little justification for such a view. The regulation that every five or six hides should supply a warrior was not a product of the Danish invasions, as is sometimes stated, but goes back at least to the beginning of the 9th century. Had the fighting material been drawn from the Chaorless class a warrior would surely have been required from each hide, but for military service no such regulation is found. Again. The feared third was composed of mounted warriors during the 9th century, though apparently they fought on foot, and there are indications that such was the case also in the 7th century. No doubt Chaorals took part in military expeditions, but they may have gone as attendants and camp followers rather than as warriors, their chief business being to make stockades and bridges, and especially to carry provisions. The serious fighting, however, was probably left to the Gazithkun classes who possessed horses and more or less effective weapons. Indeed, there is good reason for regarding these classes as essentially military. The chief weapons were the sword and spear. The former were two edged and on the average about three feet long. The hilts were often elaborately ornamented and sometimes these weapons were of considerable value. No definite line can be drawn between the spear proper and the javelin. The spear heads which have been found in graves vary considerably in both form and size. They were fitted onto the shaft, by a socket which was open on one side. Other weapons appear to have been quite rare. Bows and arrows were certainly in use for sporting purposes, but there is no reason for believing that they were much used in warfare before the Danish invasions. They are very seldom met with in graves. The most common article of defensive armor was the shield, which was small and circular and apparently of quite thin line wood, the edge being formed probably by a thin band of iron, in the center of the shield in order to protect the hand which held it, was a strong iron boss, some seven inches in diameter and projecting about three in. It is clear from literary evidence that the helmet helm and coat of chain mail burn were also in common use. They are seldom found in graves. However, whether owing to the custom of heroes or to the fact that, on account of their relatively high value, they were frequently handed on from generation to generation as heirlooms, graves are not often mentioned. It is worth noting that in later times the hero of an ordinary fegn, by which is meant apparently not a king's fegn but a man of the twelfth in class consisted of his horse with its saddle, and sea, and his arms, or two pounds of silver as an equivalent of the whole. The arms required were probably a sword, helmet, coat of mail and one or two spears and shields. There are distinct indications that a similar outfit was fairly common in its time, and that its value was much the same one would scarcely be justified, however, 
in supposing that it was anything like universal, for the purchasing power of such a sum was at that time considerable, representing as it did about 1620 oxen or 100-120 sheep. It would hardly be safe to credit men of the sixteenth class in general with more than a horse. Spear and Shield. 6. Agriculture and Village Life. There is no doubt that a fairly advanced system of agriculture must have been known to the Anglo-Saxons before they settled in Britain. This is made clear above all by the representation of a plow drawn by two oxen in one of the very ancient rock carvings at Tegnebi in Bohus Lane. In Doma's Dottie book the heavy plow with eight oxen seems to be universal, and it can be traced back in camp to the beginning of the 9th century. In this kingdom the system of agricultural terminology was based on it. The unit was the Suolung Eratrum or Plowland from Suol. Plow, the fourth part of which was the Geocle or Geochugum, originally a yoke of oxen. An analogy is supplied by the Karukata of the Danelog, the eighth part of which was the Duana or Ox Land. In the 10th century the Suolung seems to have been identified with the hide, but in earlier times it contained apparently two hides, the hide itself, which was the regular unit in the other kingdoms, usually contained 120 acres in later times and was divided into four Gerdavergidi or yardlands but originally it seems to have meant simply the land pertaining to a household, and its area in early times is quite uncertain, though probably far less. For the acre also there was in later times a standard length and breadth, the former being called for Hlumthurlong and reckoned at one-eighth of a mile, while the Asherbridu or acre breadth chain was also a definite measure. We need not doubt, however, that in practice the form of the acre was largely conditioned by the nature of the ground. Originally it is thought to have been the measure of a day's plowing, in which case the dimensions given above would scarcely be reached. Account must also be taken of the possibility that in early times lighter teams were in general use. If so the normal dimensions of the acre may very well have been quite different. The husbandry was of a company operative character. In the 11th century it was distinctly unusual for a peasant to possess a whole team of his own, and there is no reason for supposing the case to have been otherwise in early times. For though the peasant might then hold a hide, the hide itself was doubtless smaller and not commensurate in any way with the plowland. The holdings were probably not compact but consisted of scattered strips in common fields, changed perhaps from year to year, the choice being determined by lot or otherwise. As for the method of cultivation itself there is little or no evidence. Both the two-course system and the three-course system may have been in use. But on the other hand it is quite possible that in many cases the same ground was not sown more than once in three years. The prevalence of the company operative principle, it may be observed, was doubtless due in large measure to the fact that the greater part of England, especially towards the east, was settled not in scattered farms or hamlets but in compact villages with the cultivated lands lying round them. V.04P.059 to the mill was another element which tended to promote the same principle. There can be little doubt that before the Anglo-Saxons came to Britain they possessed no instrument for grinding corn except the corn queen, and in remote districts this continued in use until quite late times. The grinding seems to have been performed chiefly by female slaves, but occasionally we hear also of a donkey mill of Salquim, the mill proper, however, which was derived from the Romans, as its name Milan, from Lat, Melina indicates, must have come into use fairly early. In the 11th century every village of any size seems to have possessed one, while the earliest references go back to the 8th century. It is not unlikely that they were in use during the Roman occupation of Britain, and consequently that they became known to the invaders almost from the first.
The mills were presumably driven for the most part by water, though we had a reference to a windmill as early as the year 833. All the ordinary domestic animals were known. Cattle and sheep were pastured on the common lands appertaining to the village, while pigs, which especially in camp seem to have been very numerous, were kept in the woods. Beekeeping was also practiced. In all these matters the invasion of Britain had brought about no change. The cultivation of fruit and vegetables on the other hand was probably almost entirely new. The names are almost all derived from Latin, though most of them seem to have been known soon after the invasion, at all events by the 7th century. From the considerations pointed out above we can hardly doubt that the village possessed a certain amount of corporate life, centered perhaps in an alehouse where its affairs were discussed by the inhabitants. There is no evidence, however, which would justify us in crediting such gatherings with any substantial degree of local authority, so far as the limited information at our disposal enables us to form an opinion. The responsibility both for the internal peace of the village, and for its obligations to the outside world, seems to have lain with the Lord or his steward Jirfa. Villic was from the beginning, a quite opposite view has, it is true, found favor with many scholars, viz, that the villages were originally settlements of free kindreds, and that the Lord's authority was superimposed on them at a later date. This view is based mainly on the numerous place names ending in ing, ingham, ing, and see, in which the syllable ing is thought to refer to kindreds of cultivators. It is more probable, however, that these names are derived from persons of the twelfth in class to whom the land had been granted. In many cases indeed there is good reason for doubting whether the name is a patron in a cat hall. The question how far the villages were really new settlements is difficult to answer, for the terminations ham, ton, and sea, cannot be regarded as conclusive evidence. Thus according to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle N. 571 Bensington and Einsham were formerly British villages. Even if the first part of Egon Esham is English which is by no means certain it is hardly sufficient reason for discrediting this statement. For Canterbury, Cantwaraburg and Rochester Rough Seaster were without doubt Roman places in spite of their English names. On the whole it seems likely that the cultivation of the land was not generally interrupted for more than a very few years, hence the convenience of utilizing existing sites of villages would be obvious, even if the buildings themselves had been burnt. 7. Towns Gilda states that in the time of the Romans Britain contained 28 cities judicates, besides a number of fortresses cast at it. Most of these were situated within the territories eventually occupied by the invaders, and reappear as towns in later times. Their history in the intervening period, however, is wrapped in obscurity. Chester appears to have been deserted for three centuries after its destruction early in the 7th century and in most of the other cases there are features observable in the situation and plan of the medieval town which suggest that its occupation had not been continuous. Yet London and Canterbury must have recovered a certain amount of importance quite early, at all events within two centuries after the invasion, and the same is probably true of York, Lincoln and a few other places. The term applied to both the cities and the fortresses of the Romans was ceased or lat, castra, less frequently the English word burg. There is little or no evidence for the existence of towns other than Roman in early times, for the word herbs is merely a translation of Berg, which was used for any fortified dwelling place, and it is improbable that anything which could properly be called a town was known to the invaders before their arrival in Britain. The Danish settlements at the end of the 9th century and the defensive system initiated by King Alfred gave birth to a new series of fortified towns, 
from which the boroughs of the Middle Ages are mainly descended. 8. Houses, owing to the fact that houses were built entirely of perishable materials, wood and wall, we are necessarily dependent almost wholly upon literary evidence for knowledge of this subject. Stone seems to have been used first for churches, but this was not before the 7th century, and we are told that at first masons were imported from Gaul. Indeed wood was used for many churches, as well as for most secular buildings, until a much later period. The walls were formed either of stout planks laid together vertically or horizontally, or else of posts at a short distance from one another, the interstices being filled up with wattlework daubed with clay. It is not unlikely that the houses of wealthy persons were distinguished by a good deal of ornamentation in carving and painting. The roof was high-pitched and covered with straw, hay, reeds or tiles. The regular form of the buildings was rectangular, the gable sides probably being shorter than the others. There is little evidence for partitions inside, and in wealthy establishments the place of rooms seems to have been supplied by separate buildings within the same enclosure. The windows must have been mere openings in the walls or roof, for glass was not used for this purpose before the latter part of the 7th century. Studs were known, but most commonly heat was obtained from an open fire in the center of the building. Of the various buildings in a wealthy establishment the chief were the hall heel, which was both a dining and reception room and the ladies' bower, Brimper, which served also as a bedroom for the master and mistress. To these we have to add buildings for the attendants, kitchen, bakehouse, and sea, and farm buildings. There is little or no evidence for the use of two-storied houses in early times, though in the 10th and 11th centuries they were common. The whole group of buildings stood in an enclosure ton surrounded by a stockade berg, which perhaps rested on an earthwork, though this is disputed. Similarly the homestead of the peasant was surrounded by a fence air. 9. Clothes. The chief material for clothing was at first no doubt wool, though linen must also have been used and later became fairly common. The chief garments were the coat rock, the trousers brick, and the cloak.